Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr. This week we're talking about Chinese opera. Opera is one of the most distinctive forms of Chinese culture. Opera in China has a history of many centuries and many different forms. Some 350 different kinds of musical drama were identified in a survey in the 1950s. With its colorful costumes and makeup, its stylized and sometimes acrobatic movement, Chinese opera can be tragic or comic, patriotic or lyrical, Confucian or romantic. For hundreds of years, it has delighted audiences from courtly scholars to illiterate peasants. But to an outsider, it can seem intimidatingly difficult to understand, even cacophonous and grotesque. We want to ask, where did Chinese opera originate? How did its language of music and gesture develop? And what's special about regional varieties like Cantonese opera? So here to guide us through the world of Chinese opera are Vera Sin, a former investment banker, an enthusiast and singer and highly accomplished performer of Chinese opera, and Professor Li Siu Lang, Dean of the School of Chinese Opera at the Academy of Performing Arts. So Li Siu Lang, I'm going to start with you with a historical question. Can you just tell us briefly about what we know about the origins of Chinese opera? What are the first Chinese operas that we know about? Um, yes, Douglas, uh, it is a very important question to ask because uh, scholars and academics have usually said that the golden age of Chinese opera is uh, from the Yuan dynasty or the Mongolian dynasty, that mm-hmm. is around the 13th century. But actually, before that, there were already uh, forms of Chinese operas. Um, but it is, of course, it's correct to say that the mature form of Chinese opera uh, came into being during the Yuan dynasty. Okay, so, this is the Mongols. Right, okay. under the Mongolian rule, a non-Han Chinese foreign rule. So it is interesting that, I mean, mm. if we say that theatre, I mean, broadly speaking, theatre is kind of subversive, I mean, from an academic point of view, mm-hmm. then it is interesting that Chinese opera came into its golden age in under foreign rule. So, uh, in a sense, Chinese opera compared with other theatrical traditions is actually not that old, in a sense. And what what do we know about these early operas? Mm. In what form have they survived? Do we have have text? Do we have musical scores, pictures, or written accounts? Or what do we know about them? Yes. uh, When we say that uh, around the 13th century, Chinese opera uh, became mature, yes, there were professional playwrights. Okay. In the professional playwrights. And uh, from the beginning, Chinese theater was a musical theater. The uh, form of spoken drama never existed in traditional China. Uh, so it was always with music. Yes, always with music. And, and these, these um, playwrights, you described them as playwrights, mm-hmm. but they would also have written the music. Uh, right? No, no, no. It's the musicians who, who did the music. So you get a, a written script... Yep. And then uh-huh. the musicians supply the musical score, right. as we would say. Okay. And a common characteristic, a musical, I mean, a common musical characteristic of Chinese opera, I mean, for a thousand years, is that uh, there is a pool of musical tunes and so on and so forth uh, that musicians and the playwrights would collaborate mm. to pick from the uh, existing pool of uh, music and tunes and so on to form a whole opera. But of course, from time to time, new tunes or new stuff would be added to it. But it, the concept is very different than opera. I mean, you compose the thing originally, the 
whole thing, right? But in Chinese opera, there are existing tunes. But of course, there are rules how to uh, pick and then how to arrange them in a sequence and so on. So we, this is <clears throat> one thing I was going to ask you mm-hmm. later. Um, in a Western opera, we identify the opera with the musical composer, yeah. right? We say Aida, who wrote Aida, answer mm-hmm. Verdi, yeah. though he didn't actually write the, the words mm-hmm. or invent the story, mm. but he, he wrote the music. But in, in Chinese opera, it's not like that. It's more of, you think of it as a collaborative thing, is that right? Chinese uh, opera, does it have an author? Uh, in the long history of Chinese opera, the author is usually attributed to the playwright. Now, the, in the past, yeah. for more than a thousand years, musicians were mostly unknown. Of course, if you look at the uh, documents, I mean, the mm-hmm. ancient texts, we, we find names of musicians, but the practice is like that musicians are not really put in there. Musicians are <laughs> secondary. Well, that the, would unknown, be, the, un, the unsung heroes. That would be interesting heroes. to uh, Western But to, today it's, it's different. <laughs> But they don't compose in the sense of the Western uh, composer's role. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's turn to, because you're talking about the primacy of story over music, at least in early Chinese opera. Let's think about stories now. And I, I put this question to you, uh, Vera Sen. Uh, what kind of stories does, are told by, in Chinese opera? Where do these stories come from? Yeah, I mean, operas, different operas in different regions. And as you mentioned, there, are over, there used to be over 300-something. Mm. Now it's been packed down to about 100-plus. Mm-hmm. Most of these originated with local folk, folklore, local uh, folk songs. And uh, so how it's defined by different regions is defined by the language, by the dialect, and by the local uh, folk tunes. So, for example, Beijing uh, Peking Opera, you've got s- several sets of different kinds of musical scores, and then you add words to them. Right. Cantonese opera is a little bit different because it's very uh, tolerant. It accepts a lot of, it takes in a lot of different scores, different music, and it keeps on adding as it develops. And that is what's really, really unique and special about Cantonese opera. Uh, uh, it's a never-ending plethora of musical scores. Mm. But what uh, Professor Lee said is true. It's the, the music there, and then you add the words into it. So okay. it's, the, it's the, the writer of the verse that is important vis-a-vis the writer of the music. Okay. Um, coming back to the stories, most of it, because it started out as folk tale, um, it's mostly historical and particularly military um, uh, adventures. So stories like The Three Kingdom, uh, Forever, Forever uh, favorites. And then, of course, into the Song Dynasty and the Tang Dynasty, you have all the military achievements of the various emperors, uh, the, the invasions from foreign tribes. And then, of course, there's forever the scholar going to Beijing, to, uh, going to the capital to take examination. And then along the way, either meets a ghost or a fox or a, a turn into a woman at night or a, a pretty prostitute. I mean, there's all sorts of stories like that. This, this <laughs> and one, then one more thing, it's very yes. mythical. So mm. you have the snakes and you have the, the butterflies and you have the monkeys. It's um, very uh, inventive. Yeah. So it's a, it seems to be a 
combination of hotspots of different things. Yes. Historical figures, yeah. emperors and generals, yes. stories of battles, yes. which actually took place, however yes. m- much or little yes. we know about oh. them. Folk tales, mm-hmm. which would often have a supernatural element. Would yes. that be fair, fair yes. to say? Yes. And yeah. then this, this is what seems to me so <laughs> very interesting about Chinese artistic production in general. The figure of the scholar. Why is the scholar so important? Because often the scholar is the hero. Is that fair to say? Well, the fig- I, I suspect that the scholar is so important because he is really the the symbol of the fluidity of the Chinese society back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it's class conscious, but it's not class conscious like the Indian caste system is class conscious. There's a lot of mobility back and forth. So well, if you are a farmer's son yes. and you study 10 years under the, the window, mm-hmm. then you can uh, – and then once you go to the capital and you, you take an examination and you – you pass the examination, then immediately you jump from one class to another class. Of course, you can be sent back to your original class uh, over a couple of generations if your sons and grandchildren don't do well. But I think it, it, it symbolizes the core of, of Chinese ethics and virtues. And, you know. So the scholar is, is really a figure of aspiration. Yes. Improving himself, it would always be him. Mm-hmm. But also he exemplifies the Confucian values. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But the stories about scholars, they're not about academic. <laughs> they're not uh, about scholarship, are they? Or oh, are they? yes, too, because if you don't try hard and you don't study hard, <laughs> you don't get to to elevate yourself and your okay. family. All right. Yeah. Tell, tell us a bit more, since we're on the subject of stories, tell us a bit more about the supernatural element, about these all these serpents and monkeys. And, yeah, one you know. of the most, uh, well, two of the most famous stories in uh, Chinese opera. Uh, one is the, the monkey going west together mm. with the, uh, the monk, a monk in the Tang Dynasty to India, the, what was ancient India. This is a to, to, to the to, 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 to to discover uh, um, nirvana. And then another one that is also very, very popular and, uh, and still performed a lot is the story of the white snake who met this young man by the West Lake, fell in love with him and uh, would die for him, fight for him, die for him. Yeah. The white snake is not just a snake. Uh, he, she, a was, she was originally a snake that okay. was trying over a thousand years by cultivating herself, could uh, de- develop this magic whereby she could transform mm-hmm. herself into a beautiful young woman. Yeah. Okay, so I'm getting the sense that some of the enjoyment of going to Chinese opera would be encountering new forms of very familiar stories. Everyone knows about the. Uh, no, it's actually the- seeing old stories that you know by heart and yeah. also the old songs that you know by yeah. heart being performed by different actors and actresses that you'd like to listen to, okay. I think. Right. So th- th- this is a very interesting point that uh, Vera just pointed out. Uh, I mean, from a more academic point of view, and actually from the practitioner themselves, mm-hmm. they, they all know that. They, the essential aesthetic characteristic of traditional Chinese opera is that it is performer-led. Yes. Yes. So the performer mm-hmm. is the focus mm-hmm. of yes. everything. Yes, okay. yes, yes, that's right. Yes, yes. Right. So that when there's to be a new, a new production, it's the performer mm-hmm. who's the focus of this. Yes. The of, okay, let's mm-hmm. do an opera. Let's do the one about the mm-hmm. white snake. Following on what um, uh, Dr. Lee was saying just now, 
in the olden days, not so old days, but in the turn of last century, uh, in Peking Opera as well as in Cantonese Opera, each uh, big star, each major performer will have his, her own repertoire that is not shared with anybody else. And then, of course, there are also the classical ancient scripts that came down that everybody can perform. But then they also have script writers who write operas just for them, just just for them. Yes, tailor-made. Yes, yes, yes. Right, right. And 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 a troupe is named traditionally after the star. Mm. Yes, like the Meilan Farm picking opera troupe, something like that. Mm. Okay, Um, uh, Lisa Lang. You've written a book about this topic, so you're going to have to give me a very compressed oh, okay. answer. But I wanted to ask you something that everyone's interested in uh, oh. in Chinese opera, the question of cross-dressing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you tell us, has that always been part of Chinese opera, and what's it all about? Why does it happen? Yeah, let me try to be brief. <laughs> now, the first thing I need to say is that uh, theatrical cross-dressing is not uniquely Chinese. I True. mean, in a lot of... Uh, uh, the- theatrical traditions in the beginning was already cross dressing like the Greco Roman theatre and Indian mm. theatre and so on. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so uh, the, uh, in, in Chinese opera, now the common understanding, which is not 100% correct, I mean, among ordinary people, is oh, yeah, Chinese opera is always played by men. I mean, it is true and not true. Now, let me give a very quick historical review now. If we go back to the so-called golden age of Chinese opera, that is the Yuan dynasty around the 13th century. Mm-hmm. Now, back at that time, uh, women or actresses actually dominated the stage. There were actors, men actors, but it's women Most who dominated the, the stage. And yeah. naturally, women played men on stage. Yes. That is okay. And then later on, uh, that is uh, going into the main and the Qing dynasty, that is uh, from the 14th century mm-hmm. onward. So uh, the once again, going back to the scholars, the gentry scholar class, they kept their own troops, either all female or all male, and they were kids. Uh, oh, like 10 okay. years old to 14 years old, those are called the domestic troops, or you can say owned by a scholar, owned by a family. Uh, so it's either all male or fe- all female. So they were not allowed to mix well because of gender ideology. I mean, right. that kind of thing. So they're not to be mixed. Uh, and but in, generally speaking, generally speaking, in the public theater for hundreds of years, so it, women were forbidden to perform on stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, after the Yuan Dynasty, and then uh, uh, for a very long period of time in different historical pe- periods, women were not even allowed to go into a public theater. I mean, that kind of. Uh, you know, patriarchal ideology. Uh, so, even to be in the audience, right? Some, yeah, okay. in, at some historical moments, yeah, yeah. I, I think so. Coming back to Peking Opera, that's why these uh, troops became so important mm. in the capital of Beijing because uh, rich families, for specific occasions like birthdays, like uh, weddings, they will invite a troop into their home, and that is when the women. Of the family can actually watch, okay. yeah, because yeah. then they were so not, not allowed to go to the public, go to the public theaters. theaters. Yes, right. Okay. Now, if we if we pick Peking Opera because it's uh, mm-hmm. been, I mean the number one Chinese opera for yep. uh, okay. So the history in the history of Peking Opera, yes, it's in all men playing uh, women on stage. I mean for that specific mm-hmm. uh, regional form and for many other forms too. Uh, so it's around the early 20th century that they emerged. I, I mean, in public theatre. Mm-hmm. So up to the uh, late 19th century and early 20th century, it was all dominated by men. Uh, so cross-dressing mm. was a must. And then in the early 20th century, 
uh, there emerged first all female troops. Now, because of commercial reasons and then the opening up of society, I mean, uh, so all female troops emerging in Tianjin and, and places like that. Mm. And then, well, as time, uh, I, I mean, as history developed, so mixed uh, men and women troops were gradually allowed. By Are they us. mostly mixed now? But you still have um, in in troops. Peking Opera, you actually mm. have the return of some male dance, uh, uh, cross-dressing f- female perf- uh, male performers who play the uh, female role. You you see the return of that. I mean, they were at one point forbidden because of the Cultural Revolution and mm. and and, yeah. uh, and other reasons. But in in Hong Kong, um, there are very few men playing women. Left, at least not in the in the professional market uh, at the professional level. Amateurs, yes, yeah, yeah, very I, very minor issue mm-hmm. now. Yeah, if, yeah. if we look into the history of Cantonese opera, mm. well, before the nineteen thirties, it was dominated by men. So there were mm. all the um, yes. male, uh, what well, male dan? Dan is a man playing a woman. The, the Chinese term. So uh, it's uh, around the 1930s that it was once again allowed. And then uh, there were some Chinese, uh, Cantonese opera managers and so on, investors, they, they wrote a petition to the then colonial governor of oh, Hong really? Kong Gosh. stating the reasons why it should be allowed and so on. Okay. So there was a time, 1930s, and mm-hmm. it was mixed men and women on stage. And it's also interesting, since now that we are talking about Cantonese opera, mm-hmm. and it's also in the 1930s that Cantonese opera was for the first time sung and uh, performed in Cantonese. Previously, it was performed in what we say, Gunhua, that's the Mandarin. Yeah. You so it's a very oh, 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 interesting history. Right? Mandarin in quotes. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Right, Mandarin yeah. in quotes. Stage Mandarin. But, <laughs> let me just um, yeah. continue on with that point about cross-dressing. What's mm. really interesting is in Cantonese opera today, particularly in Hong Kong, there's a lot of women playing men's role. Mm. Yeah. Me, for no, example. You, you do this, I, I you? play men's now, role. Yes. Does that mean that, that you, are you, do you specialize in that? Yes. So you yeah. only play men. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, typically, typically, mm. if you play a man's role, you play a man's role. Yes. And if you play a woman's role, you play a woman's role. It's difficult to, to sort of go back and forth because yeah. the singing is so different. Require different voice. Yes. Okay. Different parts of of the vocal cord. Yes. Mm. So, and 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 other characteristic, uh, of Chinese opera in general is that I mean in this art form, uh. Performers are trained according to a limited division of, let's say, role types, like mm-hmm. the young male role, the young female role, mm. the young military male role, the young military female role, and so on and so forth, or mm. the old male role. So mm. when a performer is trained, he or she is trained in a specific role type, learning all the conventions and, and so on to perform that kind of role type. The gender of the performer is not that important because yeah. a man could play a woman and a mm, woman could yes. play a man on stage. So mm-hmm. that is why I mean Vera has been doing men on stage. Yes. All the time. So you you specialize in what kind of men? Um, men roles. Okay, Cantonese opera has the the, the major hero in on stage is called Wen Wusheng. So meaning he can do a scholar, he can also do a military general. That is specific to Cantonese opera. In Peking opera, you are either Wen Sheng or Wu Sheng. 
very very seldom do you have a wen wu sheng. I mean, you can, it's a, but only with beard. You cannot be a young wen wu sheng. You can be an old bearded wen wu lao sheng. Uh, in Cantonese opera, it, it, once you once you become when, once you take on the role of being a man, playing a young man, then you are allowed the plethora of uh, military uh, uh, activities, scholarly activities, uh, anything. Yeah. So you, when you're singing Cantonese opera, you might be a scholar or you might be a general. Yes, you could be and a I've young, done both. Yes. yes, and the the voice. Can yeah. accommodate to oh both yes, of these uh, th- that is not difficult. I mean, okay. with a scholar, you just sing a little bit softer. With a mili- as a military general, then you 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 come on a little bit stronger. Uh, okay. That is not difficult. Yeah. All right. So so far, we've been talking entirely about singing mm. and music. What about the language of gesture? You're a teacher, presumably. Your students have to learn the movements as mm-hmm. well as the voice. Yeah, yep, the performance. But since Vera is a performer, so <laughs> maybe she could fill okay. us in first. Yeah. There, there are some yeah. very, very basic um, gestures that everybody has to learn, and mm. one of them is the, the uh, water sleeve. Mm. Um, how, but the, the, the sleeve is actually um, an extension of your emotions. So, so how you swing yeah. your sleeve, how you yeah. display your sleeve, is not so much whether you are a man or a woman on stage, but... What emotions are you trying to evoke? So I, I want to or express. Pre- good, pre- press you on this. So it's a language. It's a language. Mm, it's a language. Yes. So if you do a particular gesture with flipping your sleeve up, yeah. I, I can't. Uh, 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 of course, over, those you have to learn. Those are some. Uh, <laughs> so those will come under in, fundamental uh, exercises okay. and, and uniform. Uh, 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 there's a um, a paradigm within which everybody has to. To follow, you know, the, the everyone has to follow because presumably everyone in the audience or the, the well informed people, understand. The audience, you do something and they say to themselves, Uh oh, mm. she's getting angry, yes. or she's heartbroken, or yes. you she's can about tell to from do this the or water that. Sleeve. Yeah. The water sleeve. You can also okay. tell one, one thing that is also very important one gesture is the walk. How you walk mm. is also expressive of the situation. You, you are, you're describing the not just your own emotion, but the environment. So if you if you walk with a swing, that means you are a you know you're a vulgar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you're a vulgar. That's so characterization. Uh, yes, it Turning is characterization. The, the kind of yes. person you are. Uh, also emotions. Uh huh. And also, if you're walking very stealthily across the stage, that means you are either a thief or you're trying to, to to to, to be secretive. To be secretive, something. yes, mm. exactly. Mm. Yeah. So it's very interesting, but it's all stock movements. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In 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 other words, we could say that the the performance aesthetic of Chinese opera is that it is all conventionalized. Ah, yes, mm. yes. Use that's the word, yes. Mm. So mm. performers learn all the different sets of conventions mm. to perform different kinds of emotions, to show the different uh, like social status and age mm. and so on of the character. Does yeah. this mean, okay, that, that's interesting. Does this mean that as a performer, um, Vera, you don't have very much latitude no. to, to no. improvise, for No, example? no, that's this not true. The basics are the basics. The conventions are the conventions. But how you use and combine the conventions is entirely up to you. Um, f- from what Dr. Lee says, I certainly remember, um, you kick, right? Everybody kicks. Um, as a military general, you can kick higher. 
But if you are a scholar coming out onto the stage yeah. and you want to show your feet because you want to show the shine of your boots, you cannot kick very high. Otherwise, people will immediately say, that person is wrong. She, that, that performer is not doing it right. right. Because as a scholar, sh uh, the performer should not show the boots so much, kick so high. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we've, we've started talking about Cantonese opera. What's different about Cantonese? What's specific about Cantonese as opposed to other kinds of Chinese opera? <laughs> may I, oh, may yeah, I answer right, that first? Right. Right, <laughs> because I, I, I find, yeah, yeah um, I think Cantonese opera is particularly unique among all the Chinese opera species because it is very tolerant of foreign music. It's oh. very accepting of any kind of music scores. So Cantonese opera uh, incorporates not just Peking opera, uh, Shanghai opera scores, uh, Huang Meixi scores, but also all sorts of Western melodies. Western melodies. Really? Yes, yes. Okay. And any kind of new songs that come up in the pop, uh, mm -hmm. score, uh, pop list, one day you will find that it's been incorporated into a, 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 a Cantonese opera piece. Mm. Yeah. It's very fascinating. Yeah. The amount of acceptance, the, I think it has something to do with the Cantonese spirit. Mm. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That's, I, it is, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think Vera and I will be very excited in talking about the unique characteristics of Cantonese opera. Yeah. Okay. Let me add some historical uh, information about it. So, um, it's once again going back to the 1930s. Mm -hmm. So in the 1930s, some of the leading uh, Cantonese opera performers, like Si Goxin yeah. and Ma Si Zhang, mm. they introduced a lot of innovation and uh, changes to Cantonese opera. They incorporated Western musical instruments. Yes, yes. And once there were even examples of using a totally Western ensemble to mm. accompany a performance. But, but it was orchestra. yeah in the, mm. in the 1930s mm. with, with no traditional Chinese instrument. It was right. an experiment, but uh, it, it didn't stay on. I mean. mm -hmm. But uh, two Western instruments have been incorporated as a, as a standard, if not permanent, instrument in the accompaniment of Cantonese opera today, especially in Hong Kong. One is a violin. The violin in the Western context is called mm. violin. But in Cantonese opera, it's called fan ling. Mm -hmm. And then the saxophone. It, it's standard. It's yeah. standard, and the violin is standard. In every yeah. performance, you would, you would, the violin is is the main instrument actually. This yeah. is just in Cantonese opera. I'm not yes. talking about other kinds of. Yes, yes, opera. yes. Uh, it doesn't show up in Peking mm. opera. Not in Peking yeah. opera. Not in Quanji opera. Mm. But since there are hundreds of regional mm. operas, I cannot. Tell okay, so fair enough. But then in the Cantonese opera that's being written. Today, mm -hmm. are they still using traditional stories that you were talking about earlier, Vera, or are the new basically, new yeah, basically modifications of traditional stories? Mm. Yeah. Starting from the early 20th century, around the, once again 1930s, 1940s, uh, in Cantonese opera, they even adapted Hollywood movies, foreign movies. They adapted the stories, and they also stage. Uh, uh, Cantonese opera in modern costume, in contemporary costume. Right. And Madama Butterfly was mm -hmm. adapted in really? Cantonese opera in the yeah. 1940s. The so other regional Madame operas Butterfly. are doing pretty much the same thing. I've seen mm -hmm. Peking opera do uh, uh, Macbeth. And of course, Lear, King Lear is very mm -hmm. popular because it's so yeah. uh, dramatic. So Chinese opera today, is it in good health? Are there good audiences coming along? Or is it mostly... 
old people's uh, uh, no, thing? no, no, no. It, it's in a yeah. it's in flux right now. Uh-huh. I see a lot of young people. They are mm. following some opera performers like they are stars, mm-hmm. like they are icons. So good or bad, it brings in the the new members of audience into the theatre, and I think that's that's a good thing. I mean, very good. Thank you both very much, Vera Sen, thank you, Lucy, and thank you for listening.